Our scripture reading from today is from Luke 4, 1 through 13. And as Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of man, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give you all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall, not, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you ser serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on, their, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord. Well, before we jump into that text, let's, uh, let's pray and ask for God's help. Uh, Father, we, we just want to do what Jesus said is true, which is that we do not live by uh, bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. And so I pray uh, this morning as we open your word and, and seek you that you would speak. Um, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tomorrow is a day known as Blue Monday, which is a, a day that's the result of a formula that uh, the result is that tomorrow is the most depressing day of the year. And the way the formula works is they take into consideration the, the terrible January weather, check, <laughs> the, uh, the, the distance between today and the, the last time you felt joy, of the joy of Christmas, check, and the likelihood that you have already failed all of your New Year's resolutions, check. And tomorrow is, is blue, and I'm not sure how they factor uh, NFL playoffs into that. Um, tomorrow may be a very happy day, or maybe we may really hit the bottom uh, tomorrow. We'll see. Um, but tomorrow is, is blue, blue Monday, and, and not surprisingly, the, the, the formula comes from a travel agency that wanted to, to basically figure out when is the most likely time you will give them their, your money, right? It's, hey, I'm depressed. And they're like, hey, well, we can help you with that. Let, give us some of your money. We'll take you somewhere else. That's where all of the, this idea behind Blue Monday came from. But it's, it's sort of taken off into its own idea. But what I find interesting about the concept of Blue Monday is that most, or that, that assumed into the formula is that you have already failed your New Year's resolutions, and that taps into a question we all wrestle with, we all think about, which is, can, can we change? Are we just destined to be stuck in the same patterns, habits, and practices that wear us out, that we long to be different from? Can we actually change? And it may seem like that's a weird introduction in light of the story that we just read, because Luke 4 is, is truly one of the strangest stories in all of the Bible, because it's, it's Jesus being tempted by a devil, and we're like, okay, devil? Um, how can Jesus be tempted if he's the Son of God? Like, all, we just have all kinds of questions about what's going on here, and yet at the heart, as we start this morning, I just want to say, listen, this story is really, 
communicating one thing to you and I, and that is you can change. So how? What does that look like? And, and what I, I want to kind of break the story into to three, three parts. One is, is our problem, uh, what, why it's hard to change. Uh, two is Jesus' path. And then thirdly, the healing. So first, our, our problem. And, and this question around, can we, can we change? And, and obviously, this is a question we, we, we ask of our, ourselves. But I, I'm going to take this in a direction that you're not expecting. Because you're probably thinking there, okay, can we change? Maybe Tim can help me with my New Year's resolutions. Probably not, but maybe, right? It's like, where are we going with this? And I'm going to, listen, we're going in a direction you're not expecting. I'm just going to own that right now because this is a very strange narrative. And, and most of us, when we think about change, we think about willpower. Like, do I have the willpower to do what I can to change? And there's essentially, there's two people at play or two, two beings at play when it comes to my change. It's me and God. Right? So I've got to have the willpower, God helps me, and those are the two things. But that, that doesn't get the narrative of the Bible correct. And so a uh, retired Episcopal priest, Fleming Rutledge, uh, wrote a book on Advent, on the Christmas season. And the, in the introduction to that book, she writes this. Many people who will be reading this introduction have grown up assuming there are two actors on the biblical stage, God and the human being. The presenting systems, uh, symptoms of injustice, corruption, Reposity, exploitation, oppression are owing to the failures of human beings to live up to his or her potential. In such a picture, it is easy enough to introduce the idea of free will that is so beloved by Americans. But this is not the biblical picture at all. The New Testament presents us not with two, but three agencies. God, the human being, and an enemy who is variously called Satan, the devil, Beelzebub, the ruler of this world, and the prince of the power of this air. So that's Fleming Rutledge who says that, who was an Episcopal, uh, Episcopal priest in New York City, someone who probably shouldn't have taken the idea of a devil very seriously, and yet she does. And then Fyodor Dostoevsky in the Brothers Karamazov, he writes this on the lips of one of his characters, God and the devil are fighting, and the battlefield is the human heart. Now, sadly, uh, Hollywood has taken this idea and just made it silly, right? There's a little red devil and there's a little white angel, and they're, all, they're arguing over, like, should you have that extra piece of chocolate? Which is not taking the, the idea of what the Bible's saying here seriously at all. And this morning, what I, I just want to say, like, if you are going to think about change, you have to consider this third agency. You're going to have to consider the reality of supernatural evil. And so even, I mean, the Bible does this everywhere, and that's one of the things, after reading Rutledge's introduction to the Advent, once I began rereading a lot of the New Testament, it's like, this, this is everywhere, and I've missed it. And one example is, in one of the most powerful depictions of, of salvation that we get in the Bible is in Ephesians 2. That's where we get, you're saved by grace, um, um, through faith, not by works, right? We get this powerful description of the fact we're, we're saved through the grace of God. But this is how that passage begins, Ephesians 2, verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. That Paul says, before being saved by Christ, we are following the devil. That's what, he, that's what he's saying. Or in a later part of Paul's life, he was, he was concerned that uh, the Christians repent of their sin. Because if they don't repent of their sin, 
Um, he, he writes this in 2 Timothy 2. They may, uh, he hopes that they repent, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. The Bible would say, the scripture storyline would say, one of the reasons you are having a hard time changing is supernatural evil, is a devil. And I listen, I recognize you're like, that's, come on. You know, we're 20 centuries, we know brain chemistry, we know habit, you know, science, we know all sorts of things to why human beings don't change. That's great, I'm in for all of that. But if you don't take this seriously, I don't think you, will, you are ready to encounter evil as it actually is in this world. To one example, I was, I was having a coffee with someone a while ago, and they were in the process of just, like, destroying their entire life. And we were talking through, like, should you do this? And, and so he was, as he was talking to me, he, he, he prefaced one thing he said by saying, this is going to sound really arrogant and self-serving, but... And then he went on to say something incredibly arrogant and self-serving, totally indifferent to the pain he was causing of everyone around him. And he, when he finished, I was just like, you know, you, before you said that, you said, this is going to sound really arrogant and self-serving. Why did you say that? And for just a moment, our eyes met. And I could, I could, and maybe this is me reading into things, but I could see, oh, I'm self-deceived. And then he shrugged his shoulders at me and didn't say anything. And that moment, for, I've, that has stuck with me because... How do we get to that point where you actually know you're embarking on a self-destructive, self-serving, arrogant path that's hurting everyone around, and you don't care, and you know it, you can, you, the, it's the light is still on to some extent, but you're still going down this, how do we get to that place? And if your answer is only brain chemistry or habits, or then why haven't we found a pill or a therapy to get rid of all this? Why is it still so prevalent in the human Condition. Why is our, ca- our capacity for self-destruction and self-deception endless? And the Bible has an answer for that. Because you cannot understand your own self, your own capacity to struggle to change unless you understand there's a, there is supernatural evil, there is a devil. So that's our problem, right? It's, you know, it's like, okay, well, how does this help me with my New Year's resolution? It's like, well, you just told me there's a devil. It's like, well, how is this helpful? And well, let's keep going. Because this is, right, we haven't even gotten to the text yet. So this is, that's our problem. It's not just that we have human free will and, and willpower that's limited, but there's actually an enemy that's trying to direct us into a, a destructive path. So two, what, what's Jesus' path? And this is where, like, this is a confusing story. Because how can Jesus be tempted? Why is he, why is he being tempted? What, what's going on here? Right? And so I just want to walk through the three temptations that Jesus goes through, that, that, that Satan brings um, to him. And the first is Jesus has fasted for 40 days, so he's probably very hungry. And Satan comes to him and says, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now I confess, like initially you think, oh, this is like a, an eating temptation, right? Like in, in a couple of weeks... Uh, we'll be at the Super Bowl, and it's, you know, there's going to be a bowl of nachos, and you're going to think, I should not eat that bowl of nachos. Man does not live by nachos alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's like, that's, what you're, that's not what this temptation is. Because, like, what would be the problem with Jesus saying, you know, I'm a little hungry. I made it 40 days. This is day 41. Let's have some bread. Like, what is the point of this temptation? And it, do, it does not make sense to think that Jesus is being tempted to eat something. It doesn't, that does not make sense to the narrative. So what, what is Satan tempting with, him with there? 
we got to move on. Temptation 2. In verse 5, uh, the, the devil took him up, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all the authority and their glory, for it's been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And initially, my question is, well, how can Satan do that? If, he's, if God is God, like how can Satan say he has all the kingdoms of the world? And listen, I can't solve this tension uh, in, in a couple minutes this morning, but this is, this is a theme through all the Bible. That's, that in some ways, Satan has authority on earth today. It doesn't, doesn't mean God's not sovereign. It doesn't mean God isn't directing history towards his own end. But, but there is a real sense of power that Satan holds in the world. And you see this in Ephesians Six, when, when Paul is writing to the Christians, um, he tells them, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so when he, when he refers to supernatural evil there, he doesn't just say, you know, there's demons and devils walking around. Watch out. He, he uses these words, authorities, principalities, powers, which he is, is a, are words that are connected to political structures, to kings, to emperors, to forces that we don't see that have real power and authority in the world. So in, in some sense, when Satan says to Jesus, I ha- this is mine to give you, there is, there, he has something to offer Jesus. And yet, in another sense, like, well, he doesn't. And so, listen, this is, this is confusing. This is hard to get. But that's why I'm asking, like, why, what is Jesus being tempted with here? Why is it tempting for Satan to say, you know what, you can have all the authority you want if you come with me. What's he tempting him with? Well, to me, it's not really clear. And so you get to the temptation three. And temptation three is... Is this uh, Satan took Jesus to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, "If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it's written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone." Now, again, I always I always read this temptation as like a powerful magic trick. Right, like Jesus is going to climb to the top of the temple and he's going to look at everyone down below and be like, hey guys, watch this. And then he jumps and then he just floats to the bottom and freaks everybody out. Right? And that's, that's like, it's a magic trick. Is that, is that the point of the temptation? And, and, and Jesus is saying, no, Satan, you can't do magic tricks. God is against magic. Right? This, is, that, is that the temptation? And that's not the temptation. So what is Satan tempting Jesus with? And there's two things here that, that clue us in. First, is that in the first and third temptation, the devil prefaces by what he says to Jesus by saying, if you are the son of God, then do this. And remember, I, I said this last week, um, but Jesus' primary identity in the Gospel of Luke is that he is the son of God. And so you go back to the beginning of the narrative, his birth narrative, what we read in Christmas. This is the son of God. Last week at his baptism, when Jesus was baptized, God, spoke, God the Father spoke over him. This is my son. With you, I am well pleased. This is my son. And then after the, uh, uh, after the baptism, there's the genealogy of Jesus. And you should be grateful we're not preaching the genealogy because this is a bunch of names. You would have been like, ah, I should have gone to the Chiefs game today. That, that would have been your response. But the genealogy, the whole point of it, you don't have to read it. I'm going to tell you the whole point of it is to take Jesus from his point today all the way back to being the son of God. 
He is the Son of God. And now, in Luke 4, if He is the Son of God, then Satan's asking him, if you're the Son of God, why are you out in the desert starving? What kind of Son of God starves? Sons of God feast. They don't starve. And Jesus responds by quoting Deuteronomy 8.3. And I, I want to go to that verse for a second. And here's what we read in, uh, in Deuteronomy 8.3. And this is God speaking to his people in light of their own wilderness trial. And the fact that they, all they got to eat was manna. And they got tired of the manna. And God's responding to them in light of, of these tensions. Moses is speaking, and God humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. See, what's at issue here, it's not about bread. It's about obedience. Can Jesus obey the type of son of God that the Father has laid out for him? Can he be obedient to God, or is he just going to, is he going to grab what's his and go to, and, and eat and feast? And this becomes clearest when you get to temptation three, when, when we read, when, when Satan says to Jesus again, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. He's on top of the temple. Throw yourself down from here. Right? God will protect you. That's essentially what he says. If you jump, God will save you. And here's what's going on there. Satan is saying, the Son of God should not die at the temple. God should save the Son of God at the temple. And of course, the whole narrative of Jesus' life is that he will be arrested by the temple authorities and they will, will put him to death. This is, this is not a temptation just about... Eat some bread, right? This isn't, you know, use it for nachos at the Super Bowl party. That's, go ahead. But it's, that's not what it's about. And it's not about Jesus having all the authorities and kingdoms and, you know, who's in charge, is Satan in charge? It's not about that. It's not about can Jesus perform a really powerful magic trick? Because he actually will do things that are far better than, you know, not dying from jumping off the temple. What's at stake here is, is Jesus is the Son of God. His path forward is to is to suffer and to die to forgive the sins of the world. And Satan says, that's not fair to you. You're the son of God. Sons of God don't starve. They don't get their crown through a cross. And they don't die at the temple. They get worshipped there. You don't have to do this, Jesus. Come, come my way. It's better. And maybe you're thinking, okay, well, what does that have to do with, with me and change? And, and here's the thing, Satan gets right at the deepest inner toil, inner toil of Jesus' life. And so I don't, I don't pretend to understand how Jesus can be God and a human, human being, but it's clear at the end of his life, Jesus prays to God the Father, please don't make me die on the cross. He prayed, Father, let this cup pass for me. And the cup in the Hebrew Bible being an image of God's wrath being poured out. Jesus says, please don't make me experience this. The greatest inner turmoil of Jesus' life is that he will have to die as an innocent sufferer even though he is the son of God. And Satan goes right to what is his deepest inner turmoil and he pushes on it. And he will continue to push on it throughout Jesus. Through all the temptations Jesus will face, 
when Satan shows up in the narrative, it's all about, you don't have to die. The Son of God doesn't do this. What are you doing? And friends, that is how temptation works in all of our lives. Satan gets right at, what is, what is your deepest inner turmoil? What is your deepest insecurity? What's your deepest wound? What hurts you the most? And then he goes right there and tries to convince you to walk down another path. Instead of obedience of, to God and all the pain that will come from obeying God in the midst of that wound, that inner turmoil, that frustration, instead of obeying God, come this way. You don't have to, you don't have to suffer. Let me make this easy on you. Let me take you a better way. And you think about, like, this, this is how it works. I think even, you know, thinking back to middle school and high school, right? All you want to do in middle school and high school is just fit in, right? Just have friends. And so that becomes the greatest point of, of temptation is, well, I'll do this thing with my friends just so I can fit in, just so I can have a place, just so I can have people call me a friend. Or I think about, you know, I thought about this in my own life. So I, uh, those of you who enjoy the Enneagram, uh, I've talked about being an Enneagram 3 uh, a long time. Well, I, I've done some, some more thinking. I think I'm actually an Enneagram 5. And the, the greatest insecurity of an Enneagram 5 is to not be seen as smart or competent. What that means is anytime someone like disregards work I do or doesn't take me seriously, like that's, my, that's one of my buttons. And what I've discovered is when that button gets pushed, um, an Enneagram 5 will kind of begin to operate like an Enneagram 8, which is the confrontationalist. Like, well, I'll, basically I'll come out swinging in a not healthy way and I'll overcompensate and I'll fight harder than I, I need to. And that's, that's my deepest, uh, that's, that's my insecurity. So here's, here's what will happen. And Missy and I, we had a conversation like this this week where I will acknowledge, yeah, I've gone too far. I've said too much. That was too strong. I shouldn't have said that. And then I start re replaying that moment in my mind. And I start thinking, no, I should have said that. Actually, I should have said more than that. In fact, that person's lucky that I'm in their life, right? It's I just, <laughs> like, I, and I, listen, you laugh. But one moment I'm repenting. And the next moment I'm like, I'm self-justifying. I'm deceived. It's amazing how quickly we can begin to go down those paths. And listen, whatever your insecurities, deep wounds are, that Satan's going there. It's not a silly little red devil on your shoulder who's going to convince you to do something you'd never want to do. He's going to convince you to do the thing that you know you should do, that you're owed. You, you deserve this. And that's what makes this so dangerous. So how do we deal with this? Right? It's like we're doing mass exorcisms, you know, this afternoon. Is that what we're doing? Like, how are we dealing with this? And, and I want to end with, with the healing, uh, the healing Jesus offers. And so if you, you know, if I'm to answer the question, even though I started my introduction saying, yes, you can change. If you came to me and say, Tim, can I change? My answer to, to you would be yes, no. Yes. And here's what I mean by that. Yes, in the sense that... Um, like Jesus prepared for this moment of great testing by fasting. I just think about this day. Like later today, my guess is, uh, you know, before the Chiefs game, they'll show like the pep talks they give one another where it's like, you know, we're going to like destroy the other people and, you know, uh, it, just, it gets intense, right? But imagine instead if, if Patrick Mahomes' pregame interview, it's like, how are you preparing for this game, Patrick? He's like, you know what? We thought we might make it to the AFC Championship game. So back on December 20th, we all decided we were going to stop eating. And we've been fasting for 40 days, and now we're ready. My guess is if you're a Chiefs fan, you'd be like, I'm, 
what else do I have to do today? Because uh, we know it's, this is, that's not how you get ready. Fasting is not how you prepare for a battle. And yet that's how Jesus prepared for a battle. Such so that when he was in the moment of great temptation, he withstood. So in one sense, we have practices that lead to change. And here's what, I'll say this very directly. If you fast, you will change. And I find it interesting that one of the core practices Jesus gave to his church has largely fallen out of the American church. We don't really practice fasting um, today. And, and it's really important because there's one moment in particular in the Gospels I've been thinking a lot about where uh, some of Jesus' disciples go and try to heal someone. They try to drive out a demon, and they can't. They're not successful. They've been successful before. They're not successful now. And Jesus shows up. They're like, you know, okay, how do you do this? And Jesus says, oh, that one only comes out by prayer and fasting. There is something about fasting that breaks into the spiritual realm that I can't explain to you. And yet Jesus found it so important before he, before he embarked into, into ministry, he didn't go get a degree. He didn't go worship at the temple. He didn't, he didn't just read his Bible. He, he fasted. And what fasting does is it empties yourself physically to say to God, I need, I need filled spiritually. I can't do this. I, can't, I don't have it in me. Please, God, take what's mine, what, take what's empty in me, and fill it with yourself. And so this week, we actually we want to do a fast as a church together. As so you came in, there's a card on your, your paper or on your, your seat. And what we're asking is, is, is on Wednesday, you consider, if you're physically able, to skip a meal and spend that time praying. And I encourage you to pray around uh, a couple of items. Um, you know, this is a unique weekend in the life of the American context of the church. That typically, uh, even though tomorrow's Blue Monday, uh, this is also the day typically uh, when Martin Luther King Day and Sanctity of Life Sunday come up one uh, next to each other. Right? And so tomorrow, Martin Luther King Day, is a day we remember that, that in many, many of you in this room, in, in the living history in our country, we, um, we physically assaulted people who just wanted the right to vote without government oppression um, that, uh, that the breakdown of, of, of race relations in our country is a deep part of our own story. And listen, you don't, it's going to take a long time to heal from that. You can just make a vote and that all goes away. And a lot of people offer, offer fast and, and loose solutions to what it would look like to actually fully embody the kingdom of God and every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping together. And my, listen, there are evils at play in that I don't begin to understand, which is why we want to fast around that. On Wednesday. And the other is, uh, you know, we live in a society that can't answer the basic question, when does a baby get human rights? And listen, I, if, if that's a part of your own story, hear grace and kindness and the salvation of God offered to you. And yet, I also want to speak directly, like this, that's a tragic reality among us. And listen, even if we voted and got all the laws in the right direction, um, of, of, of a life-affirming culture, it's not going to solve all of the problems underneath. That This is the sort of thing that's only healed through prayer and fasting. And so on Wednesday, we just want to go and, and pray around the vulnerable, the marginalized, those often forgotten in our society, um, because solving those problems is not just an easy solution. There's so much more at play than what our eyes Meet. So pray and fast around those two things. And I would also add, like, if, if there's something in your mind now, gosh, I want this to change in my own life, um, pray and fast around that as well. In fact, that probably could be an ongoing practice for you. to pray. If you want to change in something, build a fast around that. 
a day, a meal, um, a period of time where you say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to empty myself physically because, God, I can't do this. I, I, I'm going to empty myself physically that you would fill my, myself spiritually. So fast. Um, this week, and fasting leads to change. So if you come to me, hey, can, can I change? Yes, and you should practice fasting. And then I would tell you, no. You can't fast your way to life change. You can't fast your way to freedom, which is the whole point of Luke 4. Is that you and I, we're not just sinners with willpower problems. We are sinners who have been deceived, who are led away by, by an enemy who wants our, our evil. And Jesus is saying, and what Jesus is doing in Luke 4 is freeing us from all of that. Which is why one of the core messages of salvation throughout the New Testament isn't just that you're forgiven of your sins, isn't just that you um, can go to heaven one day, but it's that these, these powers and authorities and rulers have been defeated in your life and you're freed from them. And one of the most powerful examples um, of this is in Colossians. And I'm taking a chance here that I remember this on my own because I did not write this, this first reference um, <clears throat> down. Yeah, it's I remembered Colossians 2, verses uh, 14 and 15. So when, when, or 13 through 15. Here, the, this is the way salvation is depicted for us in the New Testament. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And we get that part of salvation, forgiveness of sins. But here's the last verse. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing, triumphing over them in him. And my message to you this morning is, is there is no power or authority who has any rule over you if you come to Jesus in faith. And so that's, listen, if you have not come to Jesus in faith, like, without, you know, in, in a scientific culture, I hope, like, you're a little weirded out and a little freaked out that there, there are there are forces you can't see that you are subject to without Jesus' victory for you. You need to come to him in faith, receive him in faith, trust him in faith. And for those of us who are in faith, who are followers of Jesus, yes, you can change fast. No, that's not really going to change you. But yes, you can change because Jesus has defeated those enemies in your life. That's the good news of the gospel. There's no power that holds anything over you because Jesus defeated the devil in the wilderness in Luke 4. He embraced the path of suffering that you and I might be healed. And I realize you're here, you know, there's a question in your mind. Okay, but I'm still tempted. I'm still struggling. I'm not there yet, right? Why is that the case? If I have this victory with Jesus, why am I still struggling? And the best answer to that I've heard is from the Christian author, Augustine, who in his, uh, as a church father, um, who wrote late in his life this book called Confessions, where he laid out all his sins, all his struggles with temptations. And it's because Augustine had the assumption that when you begin the Christian life, it's not the end of temptation, it's the beginning. Because now you're picking up the fight. And now you're not just looking at the surface, right? Should I, you know, I'm going to stop yelling at people. But now it's like, why am I angry? What's underneath there? And you keep digging and you keep digging and you go to work and you go to, and Augustine says, listen, you become a Christian, the temptations are just beginning, right? Be encouraged. Um, and so he's meditating on Psalm 72 and, and this reality. In Psalm 72, it's about Israel wandering in the wilderness and struggling to be obedient to God. And he reflects on this psalm in the Christian life in this way. So too, after baptism, Christian life must still confront temptations. In that wilderness, Psalm 72, the Israelites sighed after their promised homeland. And what else do Christians sigh for once washed clean in baptism? 
Did they already reign with Christ? He would say, not yet. We have not reached our homeland yet, but it will not vanish. The hymns of David will not fail there. Let all the faithful listen and mark this. Let them realize where they are. They are in the desert, sighing for the homeland. Augustine says we are where Jesus was in Luke 4. We are in the wilderness now, waiting to break in, break through temptation into our home. And he says, keep fighting because your homeland, if you are a Christian, it will not vanish. And we ask how? Why should I keep fighting if I just keep losing? And the answer is that you're, you are, you will get home. You will get home. And the reason you will get home is because Jesus, even though he was the son of God and deserved to feast, starved in the wilderness. Even though Jesus deserved to be a king of all kingdoms and authorities and powers, not by suffering and dying on a cross, he suffered and died on a cross. It's because Jesus, um, even though he was the son of God, wasn't worshipped at the temple, but was condemned there. So that you and I could be forgiven. So that you and I could have victory. That Jesus, he suffered, he starved, he died, he was raised to new life so that you and I could change. So the Son of God, starving, suffering, dying, rising from the dead so he can look at you and me and say, you are free. Now let's get through this desert and go home. Let's pray. Father, I'm just reminded again that man, woman, does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. And that that word spoken is not a word just of salvation, but one of pain. Because obedience to you often means entering into suffering, entering into self-denial, entering into a path that is so, so much more difficult in the short run. Um, and yet it's the path home for us. So I pray now as we wrestle through what's in our mind and heart about our struggles, our temptations. God, would you, would you just pre- like paint the picture of Jesus freeing us and overcoming everything evil in this world, that we would be filled with hope. And in that being filled with hope, would you fill us with the courage to fight our own brokenness, our own sin, our own inner turmoil and wounds, God, that lead us down, down the paths of sin. God, would you, would you highlight the way out with Jesus to us, we pray all this in Jesus' name.